Hi everyone, this is Pastor Brett from First Baptist Church here in Cherryvale, Kansas, and I want to welcome you to our Cherryvale First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Our prayer is that the Lord will speak to you through His Word for His people. If you're looking for a church home, we encourage you to join us for our celebration service every Sunday morning at 1045. It's a great time of praising our Lord and hearing from Him. We are just a group of passionate followers of Jesus Christ with a desire to worship Him and take His message of hope to the heartland. If you want to find out more information about our church, you can look at our website, www.fbcherryvale.org. My sermon will begin in just a moment, and thanks again for listening. Well, good morning. Great to see you all here in God's house this morning. I invite you to find your Bible and turn once again back to Luke chapter 15. As you're turning there, let me just tell you how the Lord encouraged me this week. It's kind of interesting. I didn't plan that song that we just sang there, but it kind of lines up with what the Lord was saying to me this week as well. As I was studying and praying over this lesson, I was encouraged by the Holy Spirit to continue equipping you with the truth, with the Word of God. You see, all that we do should be about one thing in our life. And although the message today is a continuation of our series in AHA, there is something that I want you to embrace this morning. Something that I heard God say to me this week, and it's something I want you to take home with you. It's something I want you to meditate over, and it is this, that Jesus is the subject. He is the one subject that everything should be all about. I want you to understand something here. And this may come as a shock to some of you. See, coming here today, being here in church with us this morning, this is not about you. It is not about you. That's perfectly right. Being here today, it's not about you. And it's certainly not at all about me. Because without Jesus, none of us would be here. None of this would matter without Jesus being here with us. Now, without Jesus, we understand we're dead in our sins. We have no hope. You see, church, Jesus is the reason that we gather. Jesus is the reason that we call ourselves Christians. Jesus is the reason that we fellowship together with like believers. Jesus, it's what makes us better men and women. To teach our children to grow up and be better men and women. To allow them to teach their children the ways of the Lord. But all too often, what do we see? We see so-called Christians who come to church. They don't practice all of the commanded spiritual disciplines. They neglect the works of grace that they've been given, believing that somehow they deserve grace for being who they feel they are. They're entitled to God's grace just to be poured out upon them because maybe they were just some former hotshot in the church or something. And, And I'm sorry to say, okay, it's simply not true. We need to understand that none of us here, no one deserves grace. We don't deserve any of God's grace. And regardless of what you might be thinking this morning, you don't make Jesus better because you're here. You don't even make this church better because you're here. He makes us better. We do that by accepting his will and his way for our lives. And that's through the power of the Holy Spirit as he infills us and guides us in our life. We come here to worship with the heart of worship like we had just sung about. We worship the one and only true God. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the spotless Lamb of God. He's the one who came down. He died on the cross for you and for me. The only investment that you have to make is to ask Jesus to be your Savior by repenting of the past wrongs that you've done and acknowledging Him as the Lord of your life and being transformed by the Holy Spirit, living a new life in Christ. Friends, I could ask, have you truly done that? Is Jesus, is He the subject of your life? You see, all too often we say these words, we say them with our mouths. We say it all the time, but we don't live it out. When I say live it out, it's this. I mean living as if Jesus is the subject of your life in everything, everything that you do. 
Oh, sure, it's a pretty easy thing to say. We say many things, right, that we don't really mean. But to live it out, to live out Christ in your life is to take immediate action. It means something completely different. And taking action, taking immediate action, is exactly what the message is all about today. So I want you to ask yourself this question. Is Jesus, is he the subject of your life? Or can you sit there and say, truly, honestly, if you're being brutally honest like we talked about last week, I am the subject of my life. And I just kind of put this Jesus t-shirt on when I come into church on Sunday mornings. And I know, I know you all know what I'm talking about. We're in our series here. We've been studying the parable of the prodigal son. When we saw last week, we saw him where? He was feeding the pigs, right? He was so hungry as he was feeding those pigs, he even wanted to eat the pig slop that he was feeding to them. But then... What happened? He got brutally honest with himself, didn't he? And he realized and he admitted that something was wrong and he couldn't do anything about what was wrong. That begs the question, are you being honest with yourself about the situations that you're going through in your life? Or are you lying to yourself? Are you lying to the others that are around you about who you really are? As we talked about, friends, you must be honest with yourself, brutally honest about your situation and what's going on. Understand, God already knows the answer to that question. You're not hiding anything from him, okay? And you need to figure it out in your life. Now, again, so far in our story, in the past two weeks, we've seen the first two of the three key ingredients, those crucial ingredients of aha. We saw them come together, that sudden awakening, and we saw the brutal honesty last week. And that's all great. But the question is, what's next? What is that third ingredient? What is the action plan and its immediate action in your life? You see, action will determine the difference between whether your story is just some kind of sad story going on that people will look at and say, oh, that's sad, or whether it's an aha story that people will look at and say, man, did you see what God did in their life? Because without immediate action, understand, there is no aha. Let's pick up our story. Please stand in honor of reading God's word. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 15, verse 17, and I'm going to read down through the first part of verse 20. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Let's stop there for a second. Up to this point, the son, he what? He just used words, right? That's all he was doing. He was speaking words. He put no action into place at this point. And so often, I got to tell you, right there, that's where most aha stories, they stop. Right there. But that was until this next verse. What does it say in verse 20? And he arose and came to his father. Right there, friends. Right there is the immediate action. And we're going to stop right there. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you that Jesus was such a great storyteller and that he could understand where our hearts are and what the message needed to be so that he could touch our hearts with his words. I pray this morning that we'll allow those words to penetrate our hearts and, and our lives and we've awakened. We've become brutally honest and now, Lord, we need to take action. I pray you'll guide us down that path of action for our lives so that we can have an aha, whether it's our whole life that needs to change or whether it's just some small part of our life that needs to change. Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts. It's in your name we pray. And all God's children said, amen. You may be seated. Let me begin by saying this young man, remember, he had a sudden awakening. Verse 17 said what? He came to himself. 
Then we saw last week, he got brutally honest with himself. He had to understand where he was. He had to understand what got him to that point of where he was. And he had to understand the consequences that he deserved for being in that position. And now, if he truly wants aha to happen, he has to act. He must take immediate action in his life. He must do something. He's got to move forward in his plan. But unless you act, understand, you won't have aha. I mean, think about it. If you don't do something, what is life to you? Life is nothing more than what? An emotional roller coaster. You're going to have your highs and you're going to have your lows. And you're going to have your highs and you're just going to be going up and down on that roller coaster of life. Honestly, church, we're just spinning our wheels in life if we're not brutally honest with ourselves. And then we step out and we take action on what it is that we already know that God has shown us to do. See, immediate action is kind of like this. Does anybody here use Groupon? Anybody? Nobody? It's okay. If you don't use it and you don't know what it is, this is kind of how it works. What you do is you sign up. You get on their email list, and every day they send you emails. They'll blast out some emails, and these emails have new deals for money off on certain products and services. But the thing is, you have to buy that coupon from their website. Now, if you do that, you can often save quite a bit of money on what you're trying to get. Now, many of those emails, when you receive them in, they don't mean anything to you. You look at them and say, that's not for me. That, that's not for me. Don't care about that. But every once in a while, you'll get something, and you'll look at that, and you'll say, hmm, this is worth my time. I could save a ton of money on this, and whether it's restaurant, or maybe it's a vacation, or some jewelry, or other stuff that you're looking to buy. But here's the thing about it. When you get this email, if you see this great deal down there, say, yes, that's what I want. I want to get that thing. Thing, what you need to do is you have to go out there and buy that coupon because what happens the next day the deal's gone you have to take immediate action you can't just see it there and, and want it and realize that hmm that's a great deal and I really should do this and then close the email and go away and hope that magically you end up with more money in your wallet it just doesn't happen you have to do something likewise in your life unless you take immediate action you won't have true aha for many, this is the hardest of the three ingredients of aha. It's hard enough to be brutally honest with yourself and with others and with God. But translating that into immediate action, into actually doing something in your life, is one of the most difficult things in the world to do. It's like what happens to many of us, right? It's the morning after Thanksgiving. And we all know we're Baptists. We love to eat on Thanksgiving, right? And we pack on the pounds. And you get on that scale that day after Thanksgiving. And you look down at it. And the number keeps going up. Go, slow down. Slow down. You don't like what you see, right? But what happens is you wait until New Year's Day. So it's finally New Year's Day. You're going to make this resolution that says, I think I need to lose some weight. So you decide on New Year's Day you're going to go out and you're going to lose some weight. But you made a resolution, but you haven't really done anything about it yet. And remember when we talked about New Year's resolutions, they never really last either, do they? I'm going to tell you, action can be the hardest part of aha. But this prodigal son down here in Luke 15, he realizes that he can't stay where he is. And verse 20 said what? It said, and he arose. He got up. He was ready to do something, meaning he was ready to go. Now, what's interesting here is the Greek translation of those words, he arose. It's actually just one word in the Greek. And what's really cool about it, it's the same word in the Greek that was used to translate the word resurrection when speaking of Jesus. So it's like we're resurrecting our life into a new life that we could have. It literally means to get up. But I wonder if, I wonder if when Jesus, when he was telling the story, if he had a little bit more in mind for his people to understand. See, the prodigal son didn't just stand up. He didn't just start walking. He got up. He got out of something that was bigger than just a pig pen. 
I believe he got up into a new life for himself. He got up and started a new life. Because sometimes just getting up, getting up out of where you're at, the pig slop, a life that you're living in, it can change everything for you. And just like that prodigal son, we have the opportunity to have a new life if we will simply get up. You see, getting up, that can mean the difference between a divorce and mending your marriage. Getting up, that can be the difference between struggling with some kind of ongoing addiction and freedom, freedom from depression. Getting up can be the difference between giving in to peer pressure and staying away from all of that stuff that you swore that you would never get into and you certainly don't want your kids to get into that. Getting up can be the difference between continuing to feel alone and forgiving someone, forgiving that grudge that you had that you've held on to for far too long. So my question is this, what will it take for you to get up? Because unless you act, unless you take immediate action, you will not have aha. But in order for you to get up and take action, you have to know some things. And that's what we're going to cover in our time this morning. So first, under number one, you have to know where you are. Like the son, he had to be brutally honest right there about the situation where he was. He had to understand that I'm in this pig pen, I'm in the slop, and staying here is unacceptable. This is not where I'm supposed to be. Aha takes an understanding of what life can be like. So in order to have aha, you got to have a vision of what you think God has for you. Because if you don't know, and if you don't believe that God, that he truly has something better for you out there in life, better than sitting in that pig pen or in that situation that you're in, why would you even bother getting up, right? Let me ask you, church. If you really believe that God has a better life for you, I want you to say amen right now. Amen, right? You have to go beyond honesty. Here I am. I'm starving in this pig pen of life. I can't get out of here. And you have to realize, I don't have to starve to death anymore. I don't have to do that. See, when you know where you are and you realize that you don't have to stay there, it makes it possible for you to get up. It makes it possible for you to take immediate action in your situation. So, first you must know where you are. Next, under number two, you also have to know where you're going. Now, before I get any objection here, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you have to have all the answers, okay? God doesn't sit there and say, okay, then I'm going to do A, and then I'm going to do B, and then I'm going to do C and D, or here's your list of steps you're going to take, and this is what we're going to do, or this is the path, and this is the route. He doesn't do that. But what I am saying is this, you have to know which direction you're going in life. And if you know which direction you're going in life, it makes the whole thing a whole lot easier. Anyone in here directionally challenged when driving? I see a few hands back there. I don't see any men willing to raise their hand. And you know, we men, we never get lost, right? But if you are directionally challenged, in the world today, how do you overcome that directional challenge? What's it called? GPS, right? You get your GPS. Now, why would you not want to get one of those? Because men, understand, if you don't have one, you need to get one. Because as you're going along and as your wife puts in the address, if you're going the wrong direction, you can blame it on her for putting in the wrong address. It's a win-win, right? Come on. Now, let me ask, do you have any misdirectional stories in your life? Here's my misdirectional story. And it's the only one you're ever going to hear from me because I don't get lost very often. So enjoy it. It was years ago before he met Stephanie. And we had a group of friends. We wanted to try out a new restaurant. It was about 30 miles away. It was east out of the town that we were in. And there was this one spot along the way where we had to go 
through this little town and we had to make some turns along the way. And I always had trouble in this little town trying to get through it. And so I was driving along and, and suddenly after making some turns as we were going through this town, I got this very funny feeling that I don't think I'm going the right direction. I think I'm going the wrong way. But again, I'm a man, right? So I'm not going to admit it. We don't admit it when we're going the wrong way. So I didn't admit I was going the wrong way. But the men I was with, they stopped talking and said, hey, we're not going the right way, are we? So what did I do? The normal man thing, right? I started to defend myself about where we were going and what we were doing. And I know what I'm doing. It's okay. Except I didn't take one thing into consideration. You see, remember I said that the restaurant was east out of town. I said it was the evening. And as I was driving along, I had to have the sun visor down because the sun was blinding me right in my eyes. So right there I knew. I should have known I was going the wrong direction. Now, the moral of this story is not that your pastor is directionally challenged, okay? It was an isolated incident, I promise. The moral of the story is this. If you know which direction you're going, it makes it a whole lot easier to get there. And should you find out that the direction that you're going is wrong, what you have to do is you have to turn around and take immediate action in your life, and you need to change your course. But there's times when we can't see the signs, right? We can't see where we want to go because what happens? The sun's in our eyes, just like we're driving the wrong direction, and we can't see through the blinders of life. You understand that, don't you? Many of you do. The very thing that has blinded you in your life is the very thing that is keeping you from moving in another direction. And so often, what is it? It's pride. It's the pride that we have as human beings. The pride of, I don't want to be wrong. I'm never wrong, okay? Newsflash, people. I got to tell you something. Hopefully, all of you know it already. But if you don't, you're not perfect, okay? None of us are perfect. When the prodigal son, when he got up out of that pig pen, he knew where he was going. Look, in verse 18, what did it say? I will arise and go to my father. He was going back to his father's house. And I doubt that he knew exactly how long it was going to take him to get back to his father's house. And I doubt that he knew exactly what he was going to do along the way for food and water and shelter and all of that. But he knew that he had to get up, get out of that pig pen and get back to his father's house. He didn't even know how the place, how his father's house might have changed in the time that he was gone. He didn't know if his older brother would even speak to him anymore when he got back home. And he didn't know exactly what this new way of life would mean, what it would be like. But he knew. He knew that going back to his father's house, that it would be better than the current situation that he was in. So he got up. He got up and he took immediate action. When you have an aha moment, rarely if ever will God show you, like we said, the exact plan of what's going to happen from there. But understand this also, if you know where you're going, if you know what God has in store for you, that it will be better than what you are doing right now, than where you've been, then maybe that's just all the encouragement you need right there to get up and get going to make that change. It might not be easy. It very well might be the hardest thing that you ever have to do in your life. You might be ridiculed, ridiculed by your friends and your family for making the change. You might have to rescind some kind of decision that you've made with a family member or a friend. But let me tell you, when God, when he gives you an aha moment, he wants you to simply come home, come back to him. It might mean saying, I don't know if I'll fit in right away at church, but I know that I need to go. It might mean saying, I might lose all my friends if I quit partying with them and, and doing all the stuff that they're doing, but I know I don't want to live my life that way anymore. It might mean saying, I don't know if he or she would forgive me, but I know that the Bible says that I am to be honest. 
It might mean forgiving mom and dad or that neighbor or that coworker or that person or that person at church or whoever, wherever it is, forgiving them. It might be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life, but you know, you know you need to forgive them the way that Jesus forgives you. When you see, when you get that glare, that sun out of your eyes and you can see, you can get past the present and you can see the future that God has for you, it makes it easier for you to take immediate action. And when you know where you're going, when you know that the end goal with God, it is possible, it suddenly makes it possible for us to get up, to get going in life, to take that immediate action. The third thing you need to know is this, who's waiting for you? Look back at verse 20. It said, and he arose and came to his father. Let's continue on with the rest of verse 20. I'm going to read down through, let's go to verse 24. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Friends, the question is this, who's waiting for you? The son obviously would have expected his father to be waiting, right? His father would be there when he got home. But there's no way that the son could have expected this to happen. That would have been me. If it would have been me growing up and I would have went away from my father's house and I would have come home, I would have been like, man, where's my father's anger, man? He's going to yell at me. He's going to scream. He's going to get right in the face as he's getting on my case. And, but in our story, there was none of that. I would have been, where's the punishment? Where's the whipping or the grounding or the taking of the car keys or whatever it was? Oh, yeah, man, this son, he's got it coming to him, right? There was none of that. What was there? There was only a celebration. They celebrated the return. Even before the son got all the way there, the father did what? He came running out to greet his son. You have to understand, this was not normal. It's not normal today, and it wasn't normal back in the day. A grown man running out, especially a man whose son was so disrespectful. This would have been unheard of back then. This would have been complete indignity for that father to treat his son this way. But what does he do? He throws all the social customs away, all the taboos, chucks them out the window, and he runs, and he hugs his son. No one listening that day to Jesus could have predicted this outcome for that son's story. Church, our Heavenly Father, He is a Father of love. He's a Father of grace. He's a Father of mercy. And we now know. How can we predict it? We can expect it in our lives now because we know. We know the one who's waiting for us when we come back home. Jesus tells us about the Father. He tells us about the one who's waiting patiently for us, who's eagerly awaiting our return to the home for you and for me to return. Jesus tells us about a father, a father who would do anything, anything to get his child back home. Jesus tells us about a father who was suffering unimaginably during the time his son was gone while he waited for his child to come back home. And now we know, we know the one who's waiting for us when we come back home. Aha, understand, it begins with us. We have to have an awakening. We have to have honesty. We have to take action. But it ends with God. That's where the story ends. We take our life, when we take our money, and when we go off, we run off into that distant country. Guess what? God lets us go, right? He lets us make the decision to leave his house. Why? He allows us this thing called free will. 
And many of us, we try to exercise that. He lets us make the decision. We want to abandon our family, to treat people poorly, to throw away our lives in sin, to pursue our own life of selfish desires, to try to fill up all the emptiness that we have in our life with drugs and pornography and gambling and anger and bitterness and work and sports and TV and video games or whatever it is for you. It starts with us. But when we say, I've had enough, I don't want to starve to death anymore. In fact, I don't have to starve to death anymore. I'm going home. I'm going back to the Father. That's when it all ends with God. He's there waiting for us, open arms, running out to meet us as we go to meet him. No matter how far off that distant country was, God, he's sitting there in that front porch. He's staring out off into the distance just waiting for you to come home. He doesn't give up. He doesn't get tired of waiting. Ah, oh, he's not coming back and go inside. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He waits. He waits for you. And when you move beyond a sudden awakening, you move beyond that brutal honesty, you finally take immediate action and you go home. We see he runs out. He runs to meet you. And friends, when you know the one who's waiting for you at the end, it makes it possible for you to arise, to get up and to go home. So the question is this. Why do you remain in that distant country? Why do you not come home? Why are you not turning over, releasing that area of your life back to God, but wanting to still be in control of that area? We're going to close looking at that question this morning and asking under number four, what's stopping you? This is another area of our life where we need brutal honesty. We need to apply that along with our dose of immediate action. But it's hard, right? It's hard to do these things. Knowing the right thing to do and actually doing it, they're not the same thing. You see, many of us, we stall out right there somewhere between, okay, we're honest with ourselves about our circumstances and we know what we need to do, but we stall out there. We never come over here and we never make the change that we know that we need to make. In his book, Kyle Eidelman quotes from a magazine article entitled Change or Die. I'm going to read you a little bit of that. It says, change or die. What if you were given that choice? What if a well-informed, trusted authority figure said, you had to make a difficult and enduring change in the way that you think and act. And if you didn't, your time would end soon, a lot sooner than it had to. Could you change when change really mattered, when it mattered the most? It goes on to say that the odds are 9 to 1 against you changing. Meaning 9 out of 10 of us in here today, even if it was a life or death situation, will not be able to make the difficult changes that are required to survive. Where does that statistic come from? He says a study from John Hopkins. They did a follow-up study of people who had coronary artery bypass surgery, an incredibly expensive and invasive surgery that usually is caused by some kind of lifestyle, whether it's too many calories, not enough physical exercise, and things like that. The survey found that two years after that surgery, 90% of the patients had not made any meaningful changes to their lifestyle. They'd had the wake-up call. They'd been talked to honestly about their condition they'd been given a second chance at life and yet nine out of ten of them made no lasting change even though they knew they had a very bad disease and they knew that they should change their lifestyle for whatever reason they can't too often we come to our senses in the pig pen we have an honest conversation with ourselves about what's wrong and and then what happens we don't move we sit right there we stay where we are and nothing changes that begs the question why why do we not make the changes why can't we make these changes that we know that we need to make 
What's preventing us from making that leap from honesty and stepping over that line, that action in our life? What keeps us from repentance that leads to salvation? I see three reasons that we find it hard to take action. The first one under A is this, passivity. It's that expression that, it'll be okay, it's gonna pass, don't worry, it's all good, it'll get better. We don't act because we're hoping that, well, if we just let it go, it'll change. It'll go away all on its own. Years ago, USA Today had an article about the fatal wildfires in that year back in California. The article quoted Sergeant Conrad Grayson, who was frustrated when people wouldn't act with greater sense of urgency. He said this, he said, when begging people to leave and they don't take us seriously, they want to pack up their clothes and fight the fire in their backyard with a garden hose. If people don't move fast, they're going to become charcoal briquettes. One of the residents out there, John Smaldridge, told of frantically warning his neighbors only for some of them to disregard him or respond too casually. He told of those who tried to go in and and save their TVs and save their computers and this and that before they escaped. He said they looked like they were packing for a trip. He said the ones who listened to me and left the area lived. The ones who didn't died. What is it that keeps us from acting with a greater sense of urgency? Instead of being aggressive, it seems it's more natural for us to respond passively. Even when a fire threatens us and much is at stake, instead of acting, we tend to step back and say, I'm sure everything's going to work out, going to be okay. That tends to be our attitude with life. The truth is, really, if you look at it, we tend to be comfortable. We get comfortable with where we are because we know it. We know where we are and we get comfortable there. Even if our situation in life is dysfunctional, it's hard for us to make a change because understand, we made those changes that got us to that dysfunction. They may have seemed like the right choices to make at that time, and it's just hard. It's hard for us to imagine making different choices now. For some, even the best of intentions, they don't and they can't seem to do any better. It hurts. It hurts. So what do we do? We hold on. You're too scared to let go because for too long, that has been the only way you've known. Sometimes we use that phrase, and maybe you've used it, stuck in a rut. When I hear that, this is how I imagine it, okay? I imagine it's people that can't change, people that don't change. Those are the ones to me that are stuck in a rut. And what happens is all I can imagine is them, they're in this rut, and all they can see is these edges of the rut in their life, and they're down in it, and they're stuck in it, and they can't go anywhere. They won't go anywhere. I think that's why it's so hard for us to take action, because we're down in the rut. We just get comfortable. We're comfortable down where we are. I know this. I can deal with it. I know what's going to happen. Yeah, it may not be great, but I know the situation, and I know what's going to happen. We get comfortable, even if it's not really a comfortable situation. We don't have any imagination. We don't even want to think about what might be different. We can't think about it, because we're stuck in that rut. So we just keep on doing what we've always done, and what We hope that somehow something will change. We'll get different results. And I've told you this before, and to me that's the best definition of insanity, to keep doing the same thing and expect the results to change. In Ephesians 5, 11 through 14, Paul wrote this. He said, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Sometimes we stumble around in the darkness. Why? Because it's all we know. That's where we've lived our life. We've lived in the darkness. So we're stumbling around in there. We need to take the steps in our life to go up there and turn on the light. To hit that switch. The second reason we find it hard to take action under B is procrastination. We don't act because we tell ourselves, oh, 
We'll get through this. It'll get better. I know it'll get better. Sometimes we have an awakening that things are not as they should be. We take the honest evaluation and we realize, yeah, we understand just where we've gone wrong in our life. And that all makes us feel pretty good about what we do. Yeah, okay, I know I'm here. I know what I'm doing wrong and we feel good. We start to congratulate ourselves for seeing the need for change. Maybe we've even taken that step of doing what? Making a plan. Okay, I need to change. I need to do this. Okay, then I do this. Oh, man, this is great. Look at this list of things that I'm going to do. And, and yet what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. We don't do anything. The problem is we feel like we've done something. We've come to our senses. We've been honest. Shoot, I even made a plan. I mean, I'm getting somewhere. But where are you? You're still in the pig pen. We need to get up. We need to take immediate action. This is something I used to joke about with my buddies back in the day. And this back, when back in the day, that's years and years ago. We talked about how we needed to start exercising again. We'd set a date. And then for some reason, when we tried to get together, one of us couldn't make it. So we put it off. Then the next day, we'd make a plan to get together and somebody couldn't make it. So we'd put it off. And then we'd joke about, well, at least we're trying. We're talking about exercising. Isn't that worth something? Talking about it's always the first step, right? But the truth is, and friends, we knew this. Unless we were actually exercising, we hadn't done anything. Nothing was getting done. Hebrews 3, 13 and 15 says this, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The key words in those verses, two words, every day. Every day, exhort, encourage one another every single day. Don't harden your hearts today. Do it today. Encourage it today. Take action today. Don't put it off until tomorrow. If there's something that you know that you need to do in your life, do it now. So why do we procrastinate? There's many reasons, right? We know there's many reasons why we procrastinate. Uh, one of those is this. You want to prolong the pleasure, right? We tell ourselves, oh, tomorrow I'm going to start my diet. But first, oh man, look at I'm going to eat half of this cake as a celebration of my new resolve to start this diet. Tomorrow I'll stop gambling, but tonight I just need to make one more bet on the big game. Go, Falcons! Tomorrow I'll end that affair, but tonight we need you to sneak off one more time for one more final night of pleasure. Imagine for a moment, if you would, imagine the prodigal son here. He's out in the pig pen. He's making his speech about going back to his father's house. But then imagine him saying this, but before I head home, let me just go out back into town. I'm going to round up the old gang back there. And we're going to have, go have one final bender in the town before I go back to my father's house. How successful do you think he would have been in finally making it home and leaving that distant country? Another reason you might procrastinate is because you want to avoid the pain. You can see what you need to do, but you're worried about how hard it's going to be to make the changes. But it's like this. I know I need to exercise, but I'm afraid I'll wake up and my muscles are hurt and I won't be able to move. I know I need to get out of credit card debt, get that all under control, but I'm afraid I'll miss the lifestyle that it's generated for me that I've grown accustomed to. I know I need to apologize to that person, but I'm afraid he or she won't accept it. The prodigal son knew. He knew how hard making his decision was. That trip back home, he knew it was going to be hard. He knew his father would be very disappointed in what he had done. He knew his older brother would be angry for what he had done. He knew how humiliating it would be for him to walk down the middle of the street in his hometown with everybody knowing what he had done, how disgraceful he was to his family. He knew it was going to hurt, but he also knew that putting it off wasn't going to make it any easier. So he got up 
and then sometimes you put it off because you want to plan it to perfection. Have you ever heard the phrase analysis paralysis? If you're ever in the corporate world, some of you maybe learned it at school, it was something we used to talk about all the time in the corporate world. This is one of the reasons that organizations and churches and businesses have a hard time of ever changing. Everything, every little detail, every little change, every part of that change needs to be considered. And worse yet, it needs to be debated. All the what-ifs and all the what-about questions, all of that needs to be answered. No one dares. You don't ever dare to move forward until every issue is discussed and dissected. At least we used to say three ways to Sunday. And it's not just a problem in organizations. You see, we do that in our lives as well. We hem and we haw. We try to think of every possibility, every situation, every permutation before we say, I'm going to do it. And the result, of course, is we never do it. We never start going. We're just keeping sitting there. We're sitting there in the pigment or wallowing in the mess that we made. One of the best aha stories in the Bible is the story of Zacchaeus. You kids know Zacchaeus, right? What was he? He was the wee little man, wasn't he? And the thing about Zacchaeus, besides the fact that he was short, that he was a very small man, was he was a tax collector, okay? He sold out to the Roman occupiers of Israel, and he was making himself rich at the expense of his countrymen. And there's one day, Jesus coming in through town. What did Zacchaeus do? He climbed the tree, right? He climbed up to the top of the tree so he could get a better look at Jesus as he was going through town. It was shocking to everyone when Jesus, when he stopped there at the tree and told Zacchaeus to come down and he singled him out and he invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. Now, tax collectors, understand, they were the very lowest of the low. They were the bottom of the barrel back in their society. Polite people didn't spend any time with these tax collectors. But that visit from Jesus, understand, that was Zacchaeus' aha moment right there. He woke up from his sin. He was honest about the way that he was cheating people. And most importantly, he acted. Look at it, Luke 19.8. It says, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. The key words there, friends, are here and now. For Zacchaeus, there was no procrastination. He got up out of the pig pen that he was in. He got up and he acted on what he said and what he knew. What changes do you need to make in your life here and now? The third reason we find it hard to take action under C is defeatism. We don't act because we tell ourselves, it's already too late. I'm too far gone. God can't ever possibly love or care about me anymore. We look at the mess that we're in. We, we look at the mistakes that we've made. We look at everything it would take to make it right again. And we decide that it's just too late. It ain't going to happen anymore. We say, okay, you ever use this phrase? That's too much water under the bridge. Too many broken pieces to put Humpty Dumpty of my life back together again. Too much hurt in my life to heal. For many of us, we look at the gap. You know, we look at our life over here. We look where God wants us to be. And we look at that gap and we decide there's no way. There's no way I can bridge that gap between where I am and where God wants me to be. You see, we try to serve him. We try to do more good than bad in our life. And deep down inside, we know that we can never do enough good. Eidelman writes it this way. He says, we can't outright our wrongs. Sure, we can make up for a few mistakes, but we can all look at our lives and admit that in one way or another, we've done irreparable damage. There isn't enough time to make things right, so we end up doing nothing. The time for action has come and gone. So with our head bowed and our eyes low, we say, it's too late now. 
I've got to think that prodigal son might have felt this way for a little while. His life was way past fixing. All the money was gone. He was living in a pig pen. I'm sure that he stunk to high heaven. He had insulted his father. He turned his back on his family. He ignored them for years and wasted all of their money. But he didn't have a whole lot of other options in his life either, did he? So what did he do? He decided he was going to get up. And he goes back and he throws himself at his father's mercy. He didn't have any expectations. He didn't figure that he even had any rights when he went back to his father. But maybe... Maybe if he went to work for his father, he went to work as a servant, maybe he could at least make up for some of the bad things that he had done to the family. Verse 19, here's where he planned what he was going to say. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. See, he knew. He knew that he had messed up bad. He was prepared to spend the rest of his life making up for the mistakes that he had made. But when he got up and when he headed home, he made a shocking discovery. His father didn't need him to make up for his mistakes. What did he want? He just wanted his son to be home. We're going to look at that more next week. Look, if you're not turning back to God because you think there's no way, there's no way that you could right all the wrongs that you've done in your life, you're right. You're absolutely right. You can't make up for all the mistakes that you've made, but you're wrong to keep sitting in that muck. You're wrong to be mired in your sin because the truth is this. The Father doesn't need you to make up for all of that. He just wants you to come home. That's all He wants. Friends, when is verse 20? When is that going to become part of your story? When are you going to get up? When are you going to take immediate action? I'm going to close with a story. It's a story that Kyle Eidemann writes about in his book. It's an aha story about a young man that went off to college. It says this. It says, eight years ago, I left home and went to Colorado State University. I was in a fraternity, and I majored in partying. The first three semesters, I never stopped and thought about what I was doing. I wasn't praying at all. After three semesters, reality came crashing in on me. I could no longer deny what was happening. I had flunked four of my five classes. It was a wake-up call. I knew I needed to make some changes. I needed to get up, get out of that fraternity, and lose some of my friends. But what I really needed was to make a change in my relationship with God if He would still have me. In that frat house, there was no place with privacy to make the phone call to my parents explaining that I had failed. So I took the phone into the bathroom. I remember there was a stack of pornography there, and I didn't want to look in that direction, so I sat on top of it. I called my parents and explained to them that I had blown it in a lot of areas of my life. Not just my grades, but also in my walk with Christ. I had strayed from him. And my parents, they sat there and they listened to what I had to say. And then they said three words to me. They didn't say, turn things around. They didn't say, make things right. They didn't say, go get some help. They didn't say, figure it out. They didn't say, we love you. They didn't say, we forgive you. What they said to him was much better than that. What they said to me was, just come home. Church, that's what Jesus, that's what he says to you and me today. Just come come home. If there's some place in your life where you need to take immediate action, you've had the awakening, you've had the honesty, now it's time to take action. Jesus says to you today, just come home. Can you do that? Let's pray. I want to thank you for listening to the message today. I pray that this message somehow has touched you and created within you a passion for action for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have any questions or you need to make any decisions or you just need to talk to someone, I encourage you to contact your local pastor. And if you don't have one, if you don't have a local church, you may contact me through the church office at 620 620- 
336-2777. We'd love to see you on Sunday mornings in church for our celebration service. It's a great time of fellowship and worship of our Lord and Savior. Come join us. We know you'll be blessed. And thanks again for listening to the Cherryvale First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. And have a blessed day.